Well, good evening and welcome to the, to the last in our series on the book of Revelation, the apocalypse of John. And so as Jesus promised, all who persevere to the end will be saved. So you guys get to go to heaven. At least that's gonna be our topic anyway for this lesson. So let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for bringing us together. We're grateful for the blessings you've given to us, for the privilege we have of being born in this nation at this time. You're gracious to us in so many ways. But Father, we also lift up our prayers for our anxieties and healing, grief, Father, and difficulties. And I pray that you would be very near to those who are, who are brokenhearted. I pray for the leaders of our nation and I pray for the leaders of this world. Father, I know that everything moves to your purposes, but I pray that you would turn their hearts toward you and that we would be at peace. In Christ's name, amen. Here's our number for questions during class and you have that on the handout and on the online handout. Uh, I remind you on this series, we do questions on a podcast on Friday, questions we don't get to here, questions that need a little more explanation. So if you just have your podcast app and you search So We Speak, you'll be able to, to uh, see all the podcasts that So We Speak Media puts out. But every Friday, there'll be one with questions and answering questions. So we have been in uh, 15 sessions of the book of Revelation. And it's been interesting, and I hope my goal has been to present several views, as you know, but really to connect a lot of the Bible together. So if you remember, chapters one through three were the letters, Jesus speaking to the seven churches. Chapters four through 19 are what we commonly call the tribulation. And we tend to look at it from our view as, oh, bad things are happening. The Bible looks at it from God's view as in, I'm judging the idols and the evil in the world, the Antichrist and Satan, false prophet, etc. And then chapter 20 is the thousand year reign. And we looked at the millennial views. And then we finished chapter 20 with this. Uh, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, for there was no place found for them. You get the sense here that this universe is ending in some sense. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they'd done. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. In other words, death no longer has dominion over people. It's not the end. Death doesn't have the last word anymore. And they were thrown into the lake of fire. There will be no more death. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so you have the tribulation, I mean, at least chronologically in a linear way, you have the tribulation, you have the thousand year reign, and then you have uh, judgment. So I just wanna recap the views. These are all Orthodox Christian views, but you remember, because we kind of drilled it into you, so you kind of realize that the way Christians have looked at this for the past 2,000 years is in the views of the tribulation, chapters four through 19, they differ on the chronology of when this is gonna happen, but they don't differ on the fact that God is going to execute judgment on the world. So preterists say it's already happened, historicists, it's in progress, Futurists, it's gonna be seven years in the future. And Symbolic says, it's always been going on. So they may disagree about when, but they don't disagree about God is literally judging the evil in this world. Then when we got to the thousand year reign in chapter 20, you realize that, okay, that breaks down a little differently. And people, they disagree on when Jesus will return. Is it pre-millennial, before the thousand year reign? post-millennial, after the thousand-year reign, or amillennial doesn't mean Jesus isn't coming back. It just means the millennium is a symbolic thing and we're already in it. But they agree that Jesus will return. That's what make these orthodox views. So you can have differences of opinion and some of these are right and I'm sure some are wrong, but they're not sinful in the sense that they're, they're not wrong in any significant way. So the views of heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, which is what chapters 21 and 22 are about, and that's the end of the book. 
the views of the new heaven and the new earth are not questioning, is it true? But they have different opinions of how is it true? In other words, when we, the Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth, and we're literally gonna move through chapter 21 and part of chapter 22. And as we do, you're gonna realize it's not really talking about heaven the way we usually talk about heaven. It's talking about the old universe and the old heavens are gone away and a new heaven and new earth, new universe, new spiritual entity is, all, is happening. So the views that I'm gonna tell you, there are three ways people generally look at chapter 21 and 22. What is it telling us? They don't disagree about heaven. They just disagree about what is this chapter saying about heaven. So let's dive in and we'll see. And ask your questions as we go and we'll answer as many as we can. So chapter 21 begins, this begins right after the last judgment. Then I saw, that's kind of a key word by the way. You're gonna see that happen about seven times in the book of Revelation. Gosh, what a nice symbolic number, isn't it? But you're gonna see that little formula which opens up a new vision that he's seeing. Now, some people will say he's seeing these visions in that they're of how they're gonna happen chronologically. And other people would say, no, this is just the order he saw the visions. It doesn't mean it's the order things are going to happen. And so that leads to some disagreement, but everybody agrees he's seeing a new vision from Christ. Then I saw a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride dressed for her wedding. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Remember, everything in the book of Revelation is proceeding from the throne of God. Chapter four, right at the very beginning. God is driving all the events, not the bad guys. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with humanity and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So the general consensus on the new heaven and the new earth and why heavens and earth Generally speaking, people think that the way of talking about that is talking about the material realm, the universe as you know it. All those great pictures, telescope pictures, and the entire universe as being the earth, the created material order, and the heavens being a real mode of existence, a spiritual realm that we do not see but is very real. And so the heavens and the earth are the totality of existence. And generally, people understand this idea of a new heaven and a new earth as what you and I think of as going to heaven, the place where you will live eternally with God. No more death, no more crying, no more mourning. So in the, in the book of Revelation, heaven is referred to as the new heaven and the new earth, a new creation, uh, a whole new uh, order of existence, and it's where we are what we were originally created to be, and that is eternal beings in union with God. You'll see this in the Old and the New Testament. So I just wanna go back, and, and you, I just want you to realize this isn't a concept that just came out of nowhere. And so Isaiah is prophesying about 700 years before Christ, and he's quoting God. In other words, he's a prophet saying, God said this, and here's what God says in Isaiah 65. Look, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and all the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I'm creating Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Now, when the people, the Jews of the time, heard this from Isaiah, they didn't understand that we were talking about heaven with a capital H, the eternal dwelling place. They understood it as God was going to restore his chosen people into a relationship with him that would last forever. And you go, wait a minute, Terry, that, 
That sounds like exactly what Jesus did. It is, because if you wanna think about the Jewish people as God's chosen people and his journey with them is a type. Uh, I'm gonna call it a dress rehearsal. People, some people might take offense at that, but think of it as kind of a dress rehearsal for what Jesus would do with all of humanity. He's going to take all of God's people, all who believe and are saved, and bring them into union with God. And so what God did in real time in history with Israel, he will do in a cosmic sense, in an eternal sense, with all of God's people. So when you think about the Jews here, and think about what God is doing, that was sort of a dress rehearsal. Well, in that sense, what he's saying to them meant one thing to them, that God is gonna bring us back to him and we will be his people and he will be our God. And we will obey and we will love him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And so they understood it that way and that was true. And in the book of Revelation you say, it's even, here's what it really says. This is the way I like to say it. Maybe it doesn't make sense to you, but it's even truer than anybody knew. Does that make sense? It was true for the Jews, but it was even truer than that because it was gonna be true on a cosmic scale. So if you are a futurist, that means the tribulation's not here yet. It's gonna happen in seven years. You're probably also a premillennialist, meaning after the seven years of the tribulation, Christ will come back, he will reign for a thousand years, we'll have judgment. You typically understand this in a very, what's called a literal way. And, and I mean no judgment in that word, all I mean is you really think God is gonna create a brand new physical universe and a brand new spiritual realm. Does that make sense? Like the new world will look a lot like this one, only like a new model with all kinds of new electronics and stuff, right? So it's like, it's gonna be a literal new universe. And that's a literalist view of what heaven is. Well, I know sometimes we don't think that way. We think heaven, oh, it's just some far off eternal place where we'll turn into angels and have wings and play harps. Zero of that is true, you know, in the Bible. You don't turn into angels you probably won't have wings, but that would be cool. And you probably aren't gonna play hard. But you will be with God, and the question then is, well, where will that be? Well, this view, the literal view says, it will be a brand new universe and a brand new heavens, but it will be a universe the way it was originally created to be. What do I mean by that, a way it was originally created to be? Well, let's go to the New Testament. This is the book of Romans. Paul's writing this book in Oh, let's see, he's in Corinth, probably the 60s AD. So he's in the 60s AD, and he's writing this, and he's in the midst of explaining some other things, he's gonna talk about creation, meaning the universe. Because it's not just humanity that is fallen, that is in rebellion against God, that uh, is fallen humanity, it's also creation itself. This universe doesn't work the way it was intended to work. Listen to what Romans 8 says. For the creation, now he's talking about what you see, the universe that you know, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. That's us. That they're waiting for Revelation chapter 21 is what this is essentially saying. For the creation was subjected to futility, meaning it was not, the, the Greek word there, think of it this way, the universe is not being allowed to, to fulfill the purpose for which it was created. Which by the way, you could say that about humanity. We are not fulfilling the purpose for which we were created because we've been bent and kind of marred by sin. So same with the universe, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And it's waiting in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So what's he saying? Well, think about humans for a second. So humanity sins, alienated from God, we call that the fall of humanity. And we have now been bent towards sin. We've been marred by God. But 
Think Jesus speaking to Nicodemus in John 3. You can be reborn. You must be born again. Paul explains it a little more in the book of Romans. He said your old self can die and you can be raised to walk in newness of life. That's what baptism actually is signifying, is my old self died and I now am raised to follow Jesus Christ and I belong to him. This is a brand new life. It's rebirth. This is where we get the name born again Christian. There isn't any other kind of Christian. Now, I understand that's a label, so I'm not necessarily endorsing the label, but the idea of being reborn, it's the only kind of Christian there is. The old self must die and you are reborn. You are not a fixer-upper. You are not a total home makeover. You are a brand new creature in Christ. This is what the New Testament teaches us. Well, I want you to think that that same thing is true for the universe. The universe also is corrupted, meaning it decays. We were not meant to die. We've talked about that before. Adam and Eve were not meant to die. Their bodies weren't intended to get old and have back pain and things like that. That's not the way we were created, but sin changed that. Remember God said, if you eat of the tree of this tree, you will surely die. Death entered the world and we all have to walk through that door, the door of death. But death, fortunately, doesn't have the last word for all those who follow Jesus Christ. This is the story of Revelation, but the creation itself is waiting to be reborn. And so a very literal uh, view of this would say, you're gonna have a brand new universe, okay? So back to this, I wanna make one other point. We're back to beginning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So we've talked about what the new heaven and the new earth is, heaven, and we've talked about the literal view. It's literally God recreating, think Genesis 1. And God said, let there be light. And God said, separate the light and the darkness. Think about Genesis 1 all over again. He says, I'm going to recreate this the way it was meant to be. But I want to show you one other interesting thing. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So there's a sense in which this is a city and a sense in which it is also the people of God. Because who does the New Testament say is the bride of Christ? The church. And when I say church, what I mean are those who are saved, the Christ followers, those whose old self has died and we now are, are uh, servants of Jesus Christ. That group of people through all time, through the last 2,000 years, that group of people is referred to as the bride of Christ. And the New Testament labels it the church, the people who have been called out and set apart. So in one sense, this is, it's just playing with images. And Jerusalem has always been a physical city that has existed despite the odds that it would have been completely destroyed before. And so you get the city of God where his presence dwelt. Think about what the temple was all about. The temple of Solomon, the temple of Herod. You, you've seen pictures of the temple in Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies with the ark and the two cherubim, the two angels on it in gold. And God said, that will be my dwelling place, meaning the presence of God where he intersected the earth, if you wanna think about it that way, was in the Holy of Holies on top of the ark. That makes sense? During the time of the Jews. Now Jesus changed that, didn't he? Temple of the curtain was torn in two. That's the curtain that separates the Holy of Holies. It's like God came out, so to speak. And the spirit of God came into all the world and into us as well. So Jerusalem is the place where Jesus dwelt. I mean, excuse me, where God's presence dwelt. And after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God now dwells in his people. And we have become, I'm gonna use some New Testament language, we are a living temple. We have been built together to be a temple of God. 
Does that make sense? When you read the New Testament, I want you to make these connections. Here's where it comes together. Here's a city where God's presence is, but it's the bride of Christ. It's all of the believers throughout time. Both of those images are talking about the same thing, and I wanted you to see the connection there. Because I want you to, when you read about the temple in the Old Testament, you read about the church, the Bible has, wants to connect those things. The temple of God is the place where God dwells. God now dwells in each of us. Think Ephesians chapter 1, 13. When you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit as a guarantee or a down payment that God would do this, that you would live eternally with him. So, okay, I'll let up on that. But I want you to see that this isn't just Revelation talking about this. The whole Bible's talking about this. Question. Okay, so we know that God and the Father will be in heaven when we have the new Jerusalem. Where is the Holy Spirit? Is he still indwelling the believers? Yes, good question. When we get later, you are going to see, this is where Trinity which is a mystery. But the idea of the Trinity is we believe a God that is three in one. And there are times in the New Testament when you see the Godhead spoken of as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, the very Spirit of God, who is living, indwelling, is kind of the theological word, living inside us. There are times when you just see God, and it refers to the Trinity. It is one and three. So think about it this time, we are, here's the way I would think about it, is we ha, are alienated to some extent from God because we live in corruptible bodies and he's eternal. We're temporal, he's eternal. But now there's a part of us that is eternal, right? The soul is what we call it. And it's been marred by sin and so we're kind of alienated. When the spirit comes into us, we begin to taste the kind of bond that we will have with God in heaven all of the interference gets stripped away. These bodies that are not meant to last are stripped away, and we are in complete intimacy with God. We'll see that in a minute. So the idea of the Holy Spirit being God's representative, I, I hate to even say it that way, but you understand what I'm saying. In us, we at some point will be seeing him face to face. So, good question. Okay. Is the population fixed in the new heaven and the new earth, or does it grow? Does the population, that's a great question there. Does the population grow? In other words, are the roads gonna be sufficient when you get there, or are they gonna be doing road work the whole time? Uh, the population, if you think about what, G I'm gonna just, when I answer these questions, I'm thinking, what does the scripture say? And so the scripture gives us a hint. Do you remember when Jesus was asked by the Sadducees about getting married in heaven? Like, you know, this, this lady had seven husbands. Is she gonna literally have to put up with all of them in heaven? You know, is that really the way this is gonna be? And he said, you don't understand. You're neither married nor given in marriage in heaven. And so I'm just gonna make, now I'm gonna make a deduction from what Jesus told us is that you don't have growing population in heaven. This is rated PG-13, so I'm just gonna say it that way, okay? Good question. So the point I wanted to make, but I need to move on because I've been a little wordy here, but I really want you to get these interesting connections. Notice the other city you have seen in the book of Revelation. So I wanna connect the Bible again. I wanna go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11. World's not in a good shape. We've had, we had the flood in chapter six. Things were really bad. And now we've got more sin and we've got people spreading throughout the world and they're in Mesopotamia, the land that was called Babylon, which we today call Iraq. I mean, this is a real event that happened in a real place, what modern day Iraq. And there was a city there. And at that time, that city's name was Babel. It is the city of Babylon which today is called Baghdad. I mean, the city has had a number of names, but it was the city of Babel. You remember the story of the Tower of Babel. What is Babel known for? Is it known for nice parks and good health care? No, it's known for a big old tower where humanity was gonna try to be like God. 
And God said, I see your big tower. Let me go way down there and I'm gonna scatter you around. Babel is a sign and that city is a sign of man's rebellion against God. Fast forward in history to Babylon. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians invade and they destroy Jerusalem in 586 BC and they tear down the temple. And it's like, well, Babylon, you are true to form. Here's another rebellion against God and his people. And so now in the New Testament, in Revelation, you saw the great prostitute whose name is Babylon riding on the devil, basically, the great red beast. Remember that back in chapter 17? It was the symbol of all of man's rebellion against God. So you have a city named Babylon who is the symbol of evil and rebellion against God and now you have a new city which is the dwelling place of God's people where they see him as they are. You see that God is even redeeming the city. He's making everything new. All of the evil, the, the corrupted universe, corrupted people, Antichrist, Satan, corrupted angel, Satan, all of those things have passed away and God has given a new reborn universe, new reborn people, and a new reborn city. Everything, I just want you to realize the connections that are running all through the Bible. Everything gets made new, okay? So then he says, and he who was, I'm just going right through chapter uh, 21. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And I wanted you to realize that means even more than you probably ever imagined. I'm making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. It is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life. This is Jesus speaking. I wanna remind you, do you ever remember a time when Jesus was at a well and talked to a woman and said something really crazy? If you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you water and you would never be thirsty. And she goes, and she's kind of smart alecky, she said, well, show me some of that water and I won't have to come here and draw this water anymore. But what's he thinking? This is exactly what he's thinking. Everything comes together at the end. And so he says, I will give from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my child. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolatries, and liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's hell. That's, that is the place the image of what we think of as hell. So I, I realize when you read this, you go, man, when I heard heaven and hell, I wasn't really thinking new heavens and new earth, lake of fire. This is the imagery that the Bible uses to talk about heaven and hell. Then, this is what happens next, came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. Remember in the tribulation, they poured out the bowls of God's judgment, who had the, the uh, one of the seven catastrophes, plague means catastrophes, and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Well, in some sense, he said, I'm gonna show you the church. He carried me away in the spirit, meaning this is a vision, to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And now you get this long description, which I've cut most of it out, but it's in chapter 21, of the beauty of Jerusalem. Are we talking about the city or are we talking about the people? At this point, those images merge together. We are the new Jerusalem. We live in the new Jerusalem. The whole point of this is to give you the images so that you understand, oh my goodness, we are more glorious than we could ever imagine. Romans chapter eight, where Paul writes this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present world cannot even be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. This is what he's talking about. We become glorious. 
if you are any of a, a bit of a theologian, you'll know in the New Testament, it talks about us being justified and sanctified, made holy, and finally glorified. And so this sense that God takes us as sinners, the old self dies, we're raised from the dead, if you will, and we have been made holy and we are presented to Christ glorious, us together. And so the images here, I want you to get a sense of the images. I told you about the literal view, now I wanna tell you about the symbolic view. The symbolic view says there really is a heaven but you don't know much about it. What this is telling you is that you are part of heaven, your presence with God. I don't know if it's a new universe. I don't know if it's a new spiritual world. I don't know anything about it. All I know is this chapter is telling us we will be glorified with God. We will live in this new city with God. And so the symbolic view doesn't say there's no heaven. It just says this is actually telling you something different. It's not really interested in telling you about heaven. It's interested in telling you about what we will be like. So it's a little different view on the chapter, but not on the truth of it. And this is where you get the language is, uh, it's radiance is like a jewel. It's clear as crystal. The 12 gates were made like were 12 pearls, the pearly gates. And the street of the city was pure gold, streets of gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in the city, and that makes sense. You don't need a place for God to dwell. He dwells in the whole city. He dwells with us. I saw no temple, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. By the way, that's also a reflection back to Genesis 1. If you remember, first thing God says in Genesis 1, let there be light. Does anybody remember when the sun is created? Later. So where's that light coming from? God himself is the light in the universe at the very beginning, and so it is at the end. There's no need for a sun or a moon because God, the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it, and they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. So. This is uh, you know, just more description of the New Jerusalem and the idea of, you can either think of this as describing a place, that would be the literal view, this is what the new universe looks like, or you can see it as describing an experience we will have, whatever place God is in. That's the difference between the literal and symbolic views. They both think it's true, they just disagree about what's it telling you. And either way, this is good stuff, right? Very, very good, either way. Uh, the symbolic view of the tribulation and the amillennial view, which basically says this is true, but it's not literal. It's intended to be true over and over and over. This is the view that most amillennialists and most symbolic hold this view, that there is a heaven, but that's not what this is talking about. This is more talking about the idea of heaven is really more about who you're with than where you are. Maybe that's a good way to say it. Heaven is who you're with, not where you are. And so it's just, that's a slight difference in how they view those two views. Chapter 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. This should be reminding you a lot of Genesis. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. All that means is, we belong to him, we are with him. He has sealed us. You may remember back in the book in the middle of the tribulation, God said, hold everything, and he sealed all of his people. In other words, you are known to God, you are known by God. Um, and so they will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, there won't be any more night. They will need no light or lamp of the sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So you get this sense of eternal presence with God. But the interesting thing about this 
is that the imagery being used here sure looks like Genesis 2. So I'm gonna read you about the Garden of Eden. And just do a short part. There's way more to this. If you wanna read Genesis 2 and 3, you'll see all kinds of connections. But I just wanna make the point. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. You just heard the tree of life uh, was here. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So you saw the tree of life. You saw the trees on both sides of the river that's flowing from the throne of God. I didn't have time to get into this, but any of you who are just so fond of Ezekiel, tons of prophecy in the Old Testament about this. Just unbelievable amount of prophecy about the Messiah and water flowing from the temple of God. So I, I just wanna give you the sense again that this isn't just a little book tucked at the end of the Bible. It connects everything in the scriptures. So what is the why is this, were we using Garden of Eden language and Garden of Eden imagery to talk about eternity in heaven? Well, there are several reasons, but one is pretty obvious. I've already told you that Eden and the universe and Adam and Eve were created and they were good, very good, which is not something you can actually say about the world right now. And that's because before sin entered the world, that was heaven, and I'm, I'm gonna put that word in quotes a little bit because you think of heaven as in the future after this world is done, fair enough, but I want you to know it actually started with heaven. That's why at the end, this language is the same as the Garden of Eden. And so Adam and Eve, what was heaven like? It was beautiful. They had work to do. They would walk in the garden and God himself walked in the garden. They were naked. And you remember when I said, what is that telling you? It meant they had no secrets from God. They had intimacy with God. And they actually had real intimacy with each other. We approximate that a little in marriage. And that's why marriage is used as a metaphor for intimacy throughout the Bible. But the Garden of Eden was like, oh my goodness, how wonderful would it be to be completely known and completely loved. That was the Garden of Eden and the new heaven and the new earth. In other words, God is making everything new. We are now back before sin marred the world. That's why we call it the story of redemption. Things started good, God says. We made them not good through our rebellion and our sin. And God worked for thousands of years to bring us back, to redeem us. Is this making sense? Or am I just talking to myself? Okay, but anyway, I want you to see this is pretty cool. I mean, this is the story of the whole Bible. The Old Testament, New Testament, all connects together. So you get this sense of intimacy is intimacy has been restored. We have come back from the land. Remember where Cain went? Into the land of Nod, the land of wandering. We've quit our wandering and we have come home. All of these words are images of heaven. Eternity, no tears, intimacy with God, a Sabbath rest. When Jesus talks about Sabbath rest, he doesn't just mean he does mean this, resting from your cares and your work and your tiredness and your busyness. That is a Sabbath, but the real Sabbath is the rest that you have. Let me say it, I'm, I'm gonna quote Tim Keller because he says this really well. He says, our greatest fear is to be fully known and not loved. Like, ooh, you're ugly. You, you're, you're a terrible person. To be fully known, but not loved. 
It's the greatest sham in the world to be loved but not known, meaning you don't love me because you don't know me. And real Sabbath rest is to be fully known and fully loved. That's heaven. That's what Revelation wants to talk about heaven being. And so I want you, when you see these images, I want you to, to get past the images themselves and say, what are these images saying to me? The fact that you have Garden of Eden language says, well, I'm supposed to be thinking of the Garden of Eden. Well, what does that make me think of? Healthy work, healthy relationships, intimacy with God. I'm fulfilling my purpose in life. I'm happy. Uh, there's no tears, there's no death. There's, you see what I'm saying? That's what this imagery is trying to say. This is eternal life. Through Adam came death, this is another New Testament. Through Adam came death, through Jesus Christ came life. So that's what's happening here. Okay, questions? Will there be different levels of reward in heaven? Will there be different levels of reward in heaven? This is a thorny little issue and I'll talk about it in detail on Friday because it's gonna take some time. And when I say that, what I mean is there are interesting hints in the New Testament and the scripture that some people take to mean that yes, there will be. There are certain scriptures that, and I don't want you to think the scriptures are deficient. This just isn't what they wanna talk about. You know, the arguments that people have about do you go straight to heaven when you die or do you sleep? You know, a lot of the questions, the only reason those are questions is because the scripture just doesn't care to answer them. Because we've got more important things to talk about. So I don't want you to think the scripture's deficient. This is one where you get interesting little hints that you might be saved, but it says, as though you came through the fire, everything you did would be burned up, but you yourself would be saved. And so then you get the idea, well, then does that mean that there are you know, better people, lesser people in heaven? And so some people think so. I will simply say this, there's nothing in the text of the book of Revelation and there's nothing really in the teaching of Jesus that would indicate that. I, I don't want you to think about the parable of the talents, okay? I'm assuming you, you know a lot of these stories and I, if you don't, don't worry about it. I didn't either, I wasn't born a Christian. And so when you read that, he gives one five talent, one two, two talents and one one. And the guy with five talents, has 10, the girl with two has four, and it, he tells them the exact same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome into the favor of your master. So there are hints that no, I mean, being with God is being with God. But there are some hints there. So I'll go into that in a little more detail on Friday, but fundamentally, I don't want you to think that Revelation doesn't talk about, okay, when you get there, they're gonna screen you. And you're either gonna be sitting in the VIP section or are you gonna be sitting in standing room only? All I know is I will be the janitor in heaven and I will be perfectly happy. I do not care. I do not think it's about status. But that's a good question because there are some hints there. Okay, so we have a new heaven and a new earth. Do we have new bodies or are we just spiritual beings without physical bodies? Excellent question. Do we have new bodies? Or we have a physical resurrection or do, are we spiritual beings? And I would say the answer to that is yes. Meaning, right now, we're not spiritual beings in the sense that angels are, right? You get the sense reading the scripture, angels live in the spiritual realm and they live in a physical realm. We are restricted, if you will, because of our corporeal existence in this body to this physical realm. We know there's a spiritual realm, but we don't sense it directly. We see it indirectly. We see the works of Satan. We see the good works of God in our life, but we see them, Jesus said, you see the wind and you can tell it's there because of what happens. You really don't know where it's from. So we don't yet, but First uh, Corinthians 15, yes, you will get a new body and it won't be a refurb. It's not going to be a refurbished model. It's gonna be an eternal body. Just read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It says, we don't know what we will look like yet, but we know we will look like Jesus, meaning incorruptible, eternal body. And so, and a body that also perceives and inhabits the spiritual, the heavens and the earth, the spiritual and the material realm. Uh, 
So great question, yes. We Christians believe, and you'll hear one of the creeds, this will make sense whenever you recite the creeds if you, if you do, that we will have a bodily resurrection. But I don't mean this body, you will receive a new body. Paul describes it as an incorruptible body, that this body is a seed, if you will, that it dies, but what comes out of the ground will never die. In other words, this body is the seed of an incorruptible body. It's exciting. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, so does the tree of good and evil show up in the new heaven and earth? It does not show up in this text. And that may be because already did that. No longer off limits, right? Uh, but no, it doesn't show up in this text. So I hope you get a sense that as you read the book of Revelation, you're seeing images. That's what it means to be apocalyptic literature. It's not a gospel. It's not the Psalms. It's a book of images that will give you ideas to understand. And so that's just what it's made to be. And so when you see these images, you think, oh, Garden of Eden, all the way back to harmony, intimacy with God, I'll get along with my wife. Uh, yeah, you think all these good things, right, from Garden of Eden. That's what it wants you to think, like, okay, as best I can explain heaven to you, that's what it's like, okay? Okay, time now. I have one more thing to talk to you about, about heaven because I have a, I'm gonna give you an opinion about heaven. And so what, would, what will heaven actually be like? But before that, I promised you that I would tell you what my views are on this. And I say my view for what it's worth because it does not matter to me which one of these views that you have. And my view may be wrong. I'm just gonna tell you how I read this text. And so first, I read it as a symbolic view of the tribulation. Why? Because it seems to me the book of Revelation wants to be a book of imagery. If it were written like a gospel, this happened, then this happened, I would say that needs to be very literal. But I think that the book wants to be symbolic. And you know, my saying is let the Bible be what it wants to be and let it say what it wants to say, regardless of my feelings. I think this, this book wants to be apocalyptic literature. It wants to be symbolic. It's true. Don't read that it's not true. It's just telling you truth through the images. So I tend to hold to a symbolic view, but here's the interesting thing. And some of you have asked this. It would not surprise me a bit if there wasn't also a literal seven year tribulation in the future and a literal antichrist and a literal false prophet in the end times. Why would I say that? If your symbolic view, you would probably even expect the futurist view to be true. I just don't think it can only be a futurist view. In other words, there have been many antichrists. There are many cities like Babylon that are allied against God's people. There have been many rulers who have oppressed and persecuted God's people. This is what it's telling you. This is what the Christian life looks like. And it was telling those second century Christians who were being killed in the tens of thousands by the Romans, don't you worry, Rome is gonna be destroyed. And it was telling them in the time of Genghis Khan when he came through and killed a bunch of Christians, don't you worry, this is gonna happen. And he may very well be telling you a literal seven year period in the future. Does that make sense? If you have a symbolic view, you don't think it's not true, you just think it's true a bunch of times. It's really true. It was true in the second century, it was true in the third century, it's true in the 21st century, and probably gonna be true in the seven years of the tribulation. Does that make sense? So I do hold to a symbolic view, but I wouldn't argue about that. I just would argue it can't just be that. If so, this, this book didn't mean anything to Christians. Chapters four through 19 didn't mean anything. For you and me, it's only for the people in the future. I don't think so. I don't think that's the way God does prophecy. God's prophecies come true a bunch in my life and your life, in our world, and in the future. So I hold to a symbolic view of the tribulation, but it doesn't rule out a futurist view. I, uh, there are more and more people making really good arguments for a preterist view, I actually don't even doubt that. I think it could have kicked off with the destruction of Jerusalem. So I'm not trying to be a peacemaker here. I really don't mind arguing about it, but big picture, I think a symbolic view can accommodate a lot of things. God makes things happen more than once.
okay? But that's a good reason why you should hold your end times view a little bit loosely. Do you remember? I don't want you to think that the Jews of Jesus' time were dumb. They were not dumb. They definitely knew the scriptures and they knew them better than we typically know the scriptures. And they'd been studying it and thinking about it for hundreds of years. That's part of what the Mishnah is, is their oral arguments about how's this gonna happen, and they missed it. That's because God does what he says. It's just, if you get an idea fixed in your head, he just might do it differently. And so I would just say, we all ought to hold it with a little humility and not insist on our way. Secondly, I'm a millennial uh, view of the thousand year reign. That's kind of a, it's kind of a Wesleyan view, but it's just, it's my view and it goes very well with symbolic. I just don't think the thousand year reign, that number, if it had said a 962 year reign, I would have said, you should read that as a literal 962 year reign, but a thousand, man, that's just such a symbolic number. And so I tend to take it symbolically and become amillennial, meaning you are in the tribulation and you are in the millennium. I mean, I, uh, people with this point of view have a very high view of the gospel and the power of the gospel to change the world and a very high view of the church as being the new kingdom of God. And I know sometimes you think, gee, we're not doing a very good job of that. Just keep following Jesus Christ and we will become more and more like the kingdom and the family of God. Uh, third, I do think, and this is where I'm gonna depart just a little bit. I do think 21 and 22 are talking about heaven in very image kind of terms. But because of 1 Corinthians 15 and the bodily resurrection, actually think we're gonna have a new universe and a new spiritual. I think God, the, the text leads me to think that even though I would like to symbolize that a little bit, I really think you almost have to take that literally. There's just too much scripture that says there'll be a new universe and a new heaven. So I think we'll have these new bodies and we'll live in a new heavens and a new earth. Okay, so that's in a nutshell how I tend to read it, but I'm really comfortable with all of these views because when it comes down to it, the essential truths of this book are held in all of these views, in every one of them, and that's why we're talking about them. There are some crazy views out there a matter of fact, there are four you know, good views of the tribulation. There are probably 40 crazy views, but I'm just gonna give you the ones that are true to the scripture. They may not all be right, but they're all true to the scripture, okay? Okay, last thing, I wanna talk about heaven. So now, now we're in the realm of speculation. In other words, this is how I read the scripture, so if you disagree with me, you're welcome to disagree with me. I know people think, and we have songs that talk about heaven as, Heaven, it's not gonna be sitting on clouds playing harps, because let's just be honest with each other. That sounds boring. It's really hard to get revved up about that. And, and heaven is anything but boring in the scriptures, right? I mean, all these people longing to be with Christ. So I think that's just kind of a made up kind of a view. So what will heaven really be like? Well, sometimes we personalize it in attempt, and I'm not criticizing this, but in an attempt to understand it. We'll say like heaven will be like uh, the most beautiful place you've ever been on earth. Well, I think that's true. Or here's a better example. Heaven is going to be like getting to play golf every day. Also known as retirement for some of you, all right? But I don't wanna talk about that, all right? Heaven is gonna be like playing golf every day. And on every hole, you get a hole in one. And I think to myself, that's gonna get boring about day two. I mean, seriously, you were not meant to just be on the highs all the time. Okay, then it's gonna be like playing the most beautiful courses, but you'll play like you normally do. Well, that's hell to me. I mean, that's not heaven. If you seen me play, you'd go, that's not heaven, all right? So what is heaven? And I'm gonna use a little piece of literature as a metaphor. And I realize not everybody in here is a Lord of the Rings fan, but I want you to think about the story, this story. This story is a fantasy story. And you may not have seen the movies, you may not care about it, and it's got battles and it's all, got all kinds of things. But let me tell you what the Lord, J.R.R. Tolkien, 
Let me tell you what he wrote this to mean. When you look at it, you go, oh my gosh, he totally ripped this off from the Bible. Yes, he did. And intentionally so. What do you have? You have a quest of good versus evil. You have justice, seeking to do justice in the world. You seek to expel the evil from the world. You sacrifice yourself for those whom you love. That's what the story's about. And you got really pretty places like Rivendell, the place where the elves live. And you are fighting against the darkness of Mordor, which is the bad, bad place, right? This movie, this book, is really, in my view, giving you an image of what heaven looks like. And here's why I say that. We were not created to sit around. And we weren't created to play harps. And we weren't created to have self-indulgence. And I'm not criticizing people that say, oh, heaven's like having the best meal you've ever had or seeing the best place. I understand that and I'm not criticizing it. But realistically, we weren't made to indulge ourselves. That's not good for us. We actually need a challenge, don't we? We were made to work. God put them in the Garden of Eden and said, keep the garden, keep it beautiful, go work, do something meaningful. We were made for relationships. We were made for brotherhood, sisterhood, you know, comrades in a great quest, a great adventure. We were made for adventure. We were not created to be couch potatoes. We human beings flourish when we have a challenge, when we have a purpose, justice, love, truth, beauty. We are hardwired. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. That's what we crave. So heaven has to incorporate those elements. It has to incorporate a quest, a fight for justice, a camaraderie with others around us, you know, truth, sacrifice, all the things that make life worth living have to be part of heaven. And so I think heaven is Lord of the Rings. That's kind of the short version right there. But when you think of heaven, I want you to think of it as an adventure. It's not the end of the road, it's the beginning of a whole new story that God is gonna write with us I don't know what quest we're gonna be on, but we were created to go be about God's business. That's why I think, I'm gonna bring in another scripture because I wanna connect this. Do you remember in John 10, 10, when Jesus said, I came to give you life, but I came to give you life to the full. I'm gonna put it in modern psychotherapeutic language for you. I came so that you could flourish so that you could be everything you were meant to be. Okay, that's kind of psychobabble, but just go with it for a second because it's what you're used to hearing. And so what does that mean? Jesus said, I'm gonna go make you fully human. What does he mean by that? Well, you've started in the church. You now have a purpose in your life, don't you? I'm gonna follow Jesus Christ and I'm gonna be about my father's business in this world. You have comrades, don't you? And you have comrades for whom you would die Christians have done it by the hundreds of thousands and millions throughout history. You have love, you have acceptance. I mean, the church is the beginning of heaven. It is an adventure. Being a Christian is an adventure. That's why it doesn't say that when you're saved, you get a card, put it in your wallet and go about your business. It's like, no, you follow Jesus Christ. It is an active pursuit. We are currently engaged in an adventure. We are here on a mission. What, what is it? Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, teach them to obey everything I've told you, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Sermon on the Mount, go love the unlovable, go do justice for those who are oppressed. We're on a mission. We're fully alive when we follow Christ. And I would argue we're fully alive in heaven and we will be on an adventure in heaven. So I hope that you get excited about that. I don't want you to think of heaven as like, oh no, I'm gonna die and leave this world, I'm gonna have to go to heaven. I want you to get fired up and go, I can't wait. And for those of you who think a rapture's coming sometime soon, pray for it, let's go. I'm ready for the next adventure, right? So 
I hope that in this series, you, you get the sense of, first of all, how much God loves you because he went to an awful lot of trouble to redeem you. He must love you very, very much. And he has called you to a purpose, made you holy, set you apart and said, daughter, son, I have got a mission for you and I will be with you even to the end of the age. Amen? Thank you guys very much for studying the book of Revelation. You're now certified experts.